I meant to mention at the beginning and neglected, we do have a number of people gone, young people, uh, kids, teens, and adults away this weekend at camp. So be thinking of them as they uh, finish up their time there and travel home tomorrow. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, as we look here, we'll continue our way through the gospel of Matthew. And this morning we'll be looking at hope for weak faith. And so if you're in a season of life where you personally feel weak or you've experienced weakness, uh, hopefully this will be an encouraging word for you this morning. As we work through this passage, we'll see that Jesus brings courage when our faith is weak. Jesus' presence brings courage when our faith is weak. We'll begin reading in Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Last week, we saw the feeding of the 5,000, and all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include this particular miracle of Jesus blessing the crowds and really teaching his disciples. Today's passage is a little bit unique to Matthew in that Matthew is the only one to follow up the feeding of the 5,000 with this story of Peter walking, or at least attempting to walk, on water. And what we see here is a little bit of a transition somewhat in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. Now, this is the, the time of year where a lot of kids take swimming lessons. And the way swimming lessons work is there's like kind of this period of growth, hopefully in the life of the child, where at least they learn not to I don't know, sink or drown. And if you've ever had this experience, and maybe some of you are living this right now, you, you take a little kid and they go in stages. And maybe you've got one of those kids that's not afraid of the water, or maybe you have one that is afraid of the water. We've had both. And, and what happens is, at first, maybe they're like a little bit shy, a little bit sheepish, and you kind of want them to be shy of the water because you don't want them to drown. But they kind of learn to jump in, maybe you jump in to mom or dad, and then over time, eventually, they're kind of jumping in by themselves and kind of staying where they can like, just get to the, the edge quickly. And then suddenly, they're, like, they're gone. And they're just jumping, swimming around, and they don't, they don't think about it anymore. Well, we've got a little bit. Jesus uh, is teaching literally and figuratively his disciples how to swim, where he's, gonna, he's kind of sending them out on their own. And so we see him separate from them a little bit, where he's going to stay back, and he's going to send the disciples out uh, by themselves. And the initial purpose of this time where Jesus spent some time away from his disciples is personal renewal. And in this case, it's Jesus' personal renewal. So by the time Jesus finishes the feeding of the crowds, the 5,000, John chapter 6 tells us that the crowds come to him and they try to take him by force. Now this isn't like the, uh, the scribes and Pharisees trying to come and take him and kill him. Rather, this is the crowds trying to come and take him and they're going to make him king. 
So the crowds, by this time, they're so excited about what they've heard from Jesus, what they see him doing, that they're going to come to him and they're going to try to make him their king. Now, this is a dangerous thing. Jesus knows it's not time for this, and so he quickly sends the crowds away. You see, the people are looking for a king, but they're looking for a king who can meet their needs. So when they find someone who can take their empty stomach and fill it, they're like, this is the guy for us, and they try to make him the king. But Jesus isn't here this time to be the triumphant conquering king, but to be the suffering king who will give his life for his subjects. So Matthew goes to great lengths to prove how concerned Jesus is in this passage to be alone. He says kind of over and over that Jesus is trying to get by himself. Verse 22, he says he made the disciples get into the boat. This word made isn't like he told them. It's like he literally is kind of shoving them in. Like, you guys get out of here. He's, he's forcing or compelling them to leave. And then he states twice that he dismisses the crowd, verse 22. While he dismissed the crowd, and then he dismisses them in verse 23. And then in verse 23, twice he says, Jesus is alone. He went by himself, and he was there alone. There's no one with Jesus in this moment. He has just poured himself out in this exhausting stretch of ministry to thousands of people, and he needs personal and spiritual renewal at this time. And one thing we see in the life of Christ is that the way to spiritual renewal is time with the Father. The eternal Son of God, who Colossians 1 tells us, spoke the universe into being, needs time to rest and restore his soul. And it's the presence of the Father that will bring refreshment to the Son. So if the Son of God himself responds to emotional, spiritual, psychological exhaustion by spending time with his heavenly Father, what makes us think we can do any better? What makes us think that we can sort of walk independent of the voice and presence of our Father? Have you ever had a moment where you looked around, you felt discouraged, and you felt all alone? In one way or another, we all come to those moments in our lives. And what's our, what's our tendency in that moment? When we look around and we feel alone, we tend to focus on our loneliness. We tend to focus on how we feel in that moment. We tend to focus on, I don't know, a sense of abandonment or, or a sense of like, does anyone care? Or a sense, and, and so we, we, in that moment, the thing we are most aware of is the fact that we are alone. To focus on the circumstances that have led us there, to focus on the people that aren't with us in that moment. Yet Jesus himself teaches us the importance of being alone and not in those moments focusing on our loneliness, but rather listening for the voice of our Father, to pour ourselves out to our Father and to hear the Father's voice. Now, God doesn't often speak audibly to us today. But we have the Father's voice. We have the Father's words written to us for our good. The voice in our heads tells us in those moments, no one's looking out for you. But the voice of our Father says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The voices in our heads tell us, you're all alone in this. And the voice of our Father says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The voice in our head tells us no one cares. But our Father's voice says, cast your care on me because I care for you. The cycle works like this. We come to God's word and we fill our, our minds and our hearts with the words of God. 
And as those words enter our mind, they soak into our soul, they renew our spirit, and in doing this, we then speak God's words back to him. So rather than accusing God, we ask God to act according to his word, to ask God to act act according to his promise. And the God who is faithful, the God who will keep his promises, will fulfill the promises he has made to his children. Our Father loves to hear from his kids. Our Father loves his children to come to them. Our Father is happiest when his children are coming to him, walking with him, pouring themselves out to him. So when you're discouraged, rather than listening to the voices in your head, Follow the model that we see here in the life of Christ. Run to the Father, the one who gives good gifts. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from him, and he never changes, James 1 tells us. He has always done this, and he always will do it. Spend time with the Father. Jesus is alone with the Father. He's renewing himself. While he's there, the disciples find themselves in a bit of trouble in verses 24 to 32. Now, a stadia or stadium, we think of the day as something you fill with people. But at this point in time, it's, it's a measure of distance. It's like 600 feet, so a couple, couple hundred yards. And when it says here that he's some distance from shore, it's literally many stadia. And John tells us, he measures it out, and he says he's, there's something like 25 or 30 stadia out into the land. So there's something like, or out from the land. So there's something like two and a half miles in the middle of the Sea of Galilee right now. So they're probably a little over halfway across, but they aren't to the other side, and they're somewhere stuck in the middle, and they find themselves a long way from either shore in the middle of this giant lake, and they're now in trouble. Verse 24 tells us that that the boat is is beaten. It's literally being harassed by the waves. So the the waves are kind of beating on this boat, and as this happens, they're, they're unable to make any headway. So they're facing a headwind. The wind is contrary. They're trying to go this way. The wind's blowing the opposite way. They're in this boat in the middle of the sea and finding themselves stuck right in the middle in a very dangerous time. Uh, so the way that uh, in this first century, the way they would do- divide up time during the night is kind of from, or from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. They're, they're, they divide the, the night up into the four different segments of three-hour time periods. So we find them here in, in the fourth watch of the night, which tells us this is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 o'clock a.m. In other words, so it was evening, they leave, and they've been fighting this all night, trying to make their way across the shore. They've been unable to sleep. They are completely exhausted. They're just about beat. And it's just in this moment that Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Now, you would think that in this moment it might bring them some comfort, but imagine that you've been up all night and you haven't slept. You tend to be maybe a little bit hallucinating anyway, and you look out, and you're in the middle of this storm, and you see someone walking toward you, and you're in the middle of this giant lake. In this moment, this presence doesn't bring comfort to you. You're like, you are freaking out. This is a ghost coming toward you. I mean, they've never seen someone walk on water, so they're like, it's a ghost, and yet Jesus immediately speaks. He knows they're afraid when they see him coming, and he says, it's I, don't be afraid. So what's the controlling emotion in the disciples' heart? It's fear. And yet, verse 26 tells us not just that they're afraid, they're literally screaming. They're like screaming little girls here. They're terrified, crying out in fear. I mean, grown men, fishermen who've been sailing this lake their entire lives are now losing their minds. So when Jesus speaks, they're not yet ready to trust. 
Yet Peter, he's, I don't know, a little bit impetuous, a little bolder than most, and so he speaks up. He's got an idea. Do you remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament? So Gideon's in the book of Judges, and God comes to Gideon. He says, Gideon, I want you to lead my people in, into battle. And Gideon looks at this, and he's like, God, I'm not really ready to do this, and I, I'm not sure you mean what you say, and so I'm going to test you here a little bit. And he, he does what we call putting out a fleece. So he, he takes a, a sheepskin, he puts it outside his tent, and he says, um, God, if this is you, I want the ground all around the sheepskin to be soaking wet, but the sheepskin to be dry. And that happens. And then the next night he switches it. Okay, let's make the sheepskin wet. I'm not sure you really meant it. And, and, and now the ground to be dry. And so you have this process. Well, Peter's fleece is a little bit different. Now, Peter should have done something a little lower risk. I mean, Gideon, you know, putting, putting out the rug at night, that's not too high risk. Pe- Peter's like, you know, if it's you, let me walk on the water. This is a high risk fleece. I mean, there are a lot easier ways to find out if it's Jesus. You know, show me your ID card or something. But he's going to get out of the boat and walk toward him. So Jesus says, come. So let's, let's follow the pattern here. The disciples see Jesus. They, they, they make eye contact. They see him. They hear his voice. And yet they still don't believe that it's actually Jesus. So the fear that's the controlling emotion in their heart, has so taken over them at this point that they cannot recognize the master or the master's voice. But Peter's going to respond to this test. Gets out of the boat, and remarkably, he begins walking to Jesus. I mean, this is remarkable. Peter walks on water. You know, you might see the bumper sticker, you know, does your boss walk on water? Well, Peter did. Peter walks in the water to Jesus, and you have to think, boom, at this moment they get it. I mean, they've never seen someone walk on water. Now they've seen the second person, and in a matter of moments, walking on the water, and they're like, it's Jesus, right? No. They still don't get it. I mean, just a moment before, they're sure only a ghost could walk on water, and now Peter, who's with them in the boat, begins walking on the water, and they still don't get it. So Peter's headed out to Jesus. He's walking on the water, but before he gets there, the fear comes back. It takes back over. Verse 30, when he saw the wind, he's afraid. Now think about this for a moment. Was the wind there when Peter got out of the boat? Yeah, it was. I mean, the wind is there the whole time. It's no surprise that there's, it wasn't like Peter steps out of the boat and, whoa, there's a storm. He's in the middle of a storm. He climbs out of the boat and begins walking to Jesus. So the danger's there the whole time. Nothing changes in terms of Peter's circumstances. Is Jesus there the whole time? Yeah, Jesus is there the whole time. Is Jesus powerful enough, sufficient to to rescue them in the middle of the storm? Yeah, he's he's there and he's present. He's powerful enough the entire time. So the danger is there the whole time. Jesus is there the whole time. Nothing changes in this equation. Nothing in his circumstances has changed. Life's bringing him in a lot of trouble, and he's got a Savior who's able to deliver him from his trouble. So what changes? Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins looking at his circumstances. When Peter saw the wind. So one minute he's looking at his Savior. The next minute he's looking at the storm. Same situation. He's walking on water minute, one minute and now he begins to sink. I mean, Jesus is sufficient the whole time. But Peter gets his eyes off of him and begins fixating on his circumstances. 
James tells us that God's word is like a mirror. In other words, we hold it up and we see reflections of ourselves or of our life in that word. Now, I don't know about you, I see a whole lot of myself in this moment. I see, a, I don't know if I'd be brave enough to hop out of the boat. I'm not saying that. I see the, the sinking moment. That's where I see myself. Stepping out of the boat, cruising along, and, 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 and life brings stuff at me fast, and suddenly I'm focused on everything going on around me. I, I hear the voices, some in my head, I hear the voices outside. Or I begin seeing needs that I can't meet, or, or ways, you know, things I see in my kids that I want, want to help with and I can't help with. Or something at work, or something at school, and, and these circumstances begin screaming louder. The wind essentially is louder than the voice of the Savior. I mean, we all go through life, and we have good days, and we have bad days. And then as those days kind of pile on one another, those good days become good seasons, and the bad days become bad seasons, and, and it becomes kind of like this extended experience in life. And so what happens is, in the good seasons of life, we start feeling good. And we look at our car, our car is going good. We look at our bank account, we're feeling pretty good. Our family, we're cruising. We're, we look at our circumstances, we're like, I got this. Or in the bad season of life, we've been looking at the same thing. We look at our car and cars breaking down. Look at our kids, they're struggling in our relationship with our kids. They're not, they're not doing or responding like we want them to. We look at our bank account, our job. The very things we're looking at before, and, and we, now we begin feeling bad about life. Why? The thing that's in common in both cases is our circumstances make us feel good or our circumstances make us feel bad. What's the unchanging thing in this equation? It's the God who is with us in the midst of the storm. The God who is walking with us in these circumstances. But what happens is we tend to fixate on what's going on around us and take our eyes off the Savior. Jesus is walking with us. Jesus is with us. And we get discouraged. Man, life rots. What's changed? Our eyes are off of the object of our faith. Our eyes are off of the one who can walk with us. We forget about Jesus. We, f- we lose our focus on Christ and focus instead on the crises around us. We focus on our circumstances. And when that happens, what happens to us? We start to sink. When Peter starts to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Peter's need is there all the time. Peter can't walk on water. That, that is not, physics tell you, tells you that like, this doesn't work unless he's sort of some, some sort of web-footed freak. Peter can't be doing what he's doing. But what does Peter do to save himself? Suddenly, suddenly he's aware of how desperately he needs Jesus. He doesn't begin treading water. He doesn't begin flailing around looking for a piece of wood. He cries out to Jesus, a simple cry of faith. Lord, save me. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. When we muddle through life, sometimes doing better than others, but it's not until we're aware how desperately we need grace that we cry out to Jesus, save me. Sometimes it happens very young in life to a young child. Sometimes it takes decades and happens at death's door. But it's not until we realize that we are incapable of saving ourselves that we cry out, Jesus, would you save me? Romans 5.8 tells us that while we're sinners, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God shows his love toward us. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the penalty for our sin is death. And yet God loved us and sent his son to be the substitute for our sins, to die in our place. 1 John 4, 19, why is it that anyone loves God? We love him because he first loved us. God's initiating love is always there. And we stand waiting, ready, hopefully, to respond to the love of God. God loves you and sent his son to die in your place. And all it takes is a cry like Peter's, Lord, save me, and God will rescue you. Would you cry out to him and trust him, Lord, save me? One thing we see throughout this story is that kind of initiating love. God loves us first. We see Jesus' initiative in caring for his disciples. He's up on the mountain praying. His disciples are in the middle of the sea. Who comes for whom? Jesus comes to rescue them. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. He's not swimming to Jesus. Jesus reaches out his hand and he pulls him up. He stretches out his hand. He comes to him. He's a loving shepherd who pursues his sheep. Now, as dumb as Peter here is, sometimes we're a whole lot dumber. Jesus stretches out his hand. We're like, nah, God, I got this. Jesus, I don't need you. Jesus, I don't, I don't want you. Jesus, I, I can tread water fine myself. But Jesus pursues us by his spirit. And when Jesus rescues Peter, look at what he has to say in verse 31. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Man, God's mirror is like shining back on us again, isn't it? I mean, I know that Jesus is, is able to intervene in our lives and our circumstances. But sometimes our circumstances just shout really, really loud. And the, the wind's really loud, and the waves, they're harassing us, like, like they're harassing the ship here. And, and when those circumstances start shouting, I just get like Peter. And I'm like, why, why has it got to be like this? God, why do the circumstances got to be so loud, so hard? Why, why are they harassing so this way? And I start, I start reaching around and working really hard, and I'm treading water, and I'm grabbing out for limbs, and it's in moments like this that God's word reminds us, look to Jesus and live. Jesus stands ready and willing. He is there stretching out his, stretching out his hand, coming to us. And when he says, you stupid idiot, why did you doubt? I know it's not someone who abusively is hitting me upside the head. It's a friend coming along and saying, you stupid idiot. I was there the whole time. And Jesus comes along, Peter, and he's got words of love for, for this idiot. And then we remember, God's got this. God's at work. Somehow for thousands of years, God has accomplished his will in the world without me. He can keep doing that. He can keep accomplishing whatever he wants in whatever way he wants. He just allows us to be a small part of what he's doing. But he doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything. And that's true for us as a church too. The secret sauce to success for any church isn't great church programs. It's not great music. It's not great facilities. It's not great youth ministries. Although we want to do everything we do with excellence, the secret to success is remembering that we have a great Savior who for generations has governed his church, 
drawn people into the kingdom of God. And the key to our success is never take our eyes off of him. Don't focus on everything around us. The reason that we worship the way that we worship, that we serve the ways that we serve, the reason that we love one another, and it's important that we love one another, is so that people know we have a great Savior. We think that, you know, life is like an art gallery where people got to look at us and we're like paintings. Like people come through and they look at us and they admire us. And really what we see is that we're not the point. We're like windows. People need to look through us and see God in us. And sometimes we get consumed with, you know, I'm the painting. Y'all check me out. And yet, in reality, the great scene that moves people to worship is through us. It's on the other side of us. As people see Christ in us, they see what truly matters. Because when people see Jesus for who he is, they worship. Verse 32. They got into the boat. The wind ceased. And, the boat, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus' compassion for his disciples, his power to calm the storm, leads them to worship. The high point in this story isn't the storm. It's not Peter walking on the water. It's this moment when they see Jesus for who he is. Truly, you are the Son of God. It's the first time the disciples address Jesus this way, the Son of God. Their eyes are being opened. So I was looking at this this week. Something jumped out at me about this story. So Peter's out walking on the waves, then he's sinking. When is it that the storm stops? In my mind, it's kind of like Peter takes Peter's hand and everything's calm. That's not what happened. It says, when they got in the boat, the storm ceased. In other words, Peter's still out in the middle of the storm, but now Jesus is walking with him. His point wasn't primarily to deliver Peter from his circumstances in this moment. It's to demonstrate that he is sufficient no matter what's going on around Peter. No matter how big the waves are. No matter how powerful the wind is. No matter how harassed Peter feels in this moment. And when Jesus walks through us, through the storm with us, then like the disciples, it moves us to worship because we couldn't make it without him. We see Jesus for who he is. It doesn't make us realize how good we are at walking on water. It makes us realize how powerful a Savior is who could carry a big idiot like us through the water. We're not walking there because we're so good at walking on water. We're walking because our Savior has our hand. It's why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He alone is worthy of our worship. Our lives, our time together each week is about worshiping a triune God who's good at taking very ordinary people and some of us who are less than ordinary and doing extraordinary things. A God who saw us and there's nothing in us to attract us, attract his love, and yet he came for us and redeemed sinners in love in spite of our sin. So we move now to our final section a brief look at the healing ministry of Jesus. So the rest of uh, this journey across the sea, they're in the middle of the sea, and the rest of it now happens with Jesus, and uh, we see that they land at Gennesaret. 
Now, it's right here, kind of on the uh, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It looks like a dot here, which makes it look like a town. It's actually not a town. It's, it's a region of several towns. It's kind of a plain area, and there are a bunch of people that live there. So they land there, and he's kind of going throughout this entire region and healing people. So when the people recognize Jesus, they start bringing him all sorts of people to heal. And the wording in verse 35 is specific. It's not just that they see Jesus, that they saw and they recognize Jesus. They knew who this was. Well, if you looked at the town there, it's not, it's not far from Jesus' hometown of Capernaum. So this region is a place Jesus is well known. He, he centers his ministry there, and so they start bringing sick people to him. Well, in one sense, this makes a lot of sense because they know Jesus heals, and so they start bringing sick people to him. But if you think about this, this presents a remarkable contrast with what we've just seen, isn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, the disciples ate with Jesus, slept, drank, lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus. I mean, they're spending every day with Jesus. Jesus comes walking toward them. They see him, they hear his voice, and they don't believe it's him. But these people who have heard of Jesus, maybe some of whom who know him from a distance, recognize him. They immediately see who he is. And verse 35 tells us about the scope and the power of Jesus' healing. The whole region, everyone who is sick, and as many as who touch him are made well. There's no sickness too desperate for Jesus, and there's no person too far gone for Jesus. One of the great questions that faces us in life, and maybe this is something you think through, maybe it's facing you personally, or you've had someone else ask you this, how can a good God allow suffering. If God's so good, how do we live in a world with so much bad? And there are a lot of difficult answers to this question. But one thing is that the Christian God is the only God who willingly entered and experienced our suffering. In other words, there's nothing that we experience that Jesus himself hasn't experienced and isn't willing to experience. There's no pain that you can go through that's any greater than the pain that Jesus went through. He walked with the sick and the lame. He not only walked with them, he heals them. He experienced ostracization. He experienced prejudice. He experienced physical pain. He experienced the anger, the judgment of God against sin. And today, he not only walks with us in our suffering, he knows what it is to suffer. Hebrews tells us we have a high priest who experienced everything that we, can ex- we experience so that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's not a distant God. He is a God who willingly suffers so that we might have life through him. And like his presence and ministry give hope to these people, his presence and his ministry gives hope to us today. So if you find yourself today suffering physically, relationally, economically, spiritually, know that you have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer and who suffered to deliver us from suffering. And he will finally deliver us from all pain, all sorrow, and God's word tells us even death itself. And a Savior who's that compassionate, that powerful, that willing to suffer with us is a Savior worth worshiping. So let's take a moment now and we'll respond to God's word, repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with him and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now.